How many of you have ever heard of Bo Jackson? Anybody? Okay, yeah. Uh, I remember when I went to college, I entered my dorm room, and the first thing I saw was a poster of Bo Jackson pointing, and it said, You don't know Diddley. And, uh, and I remember uh, Bo Jackson being able to play two professional sports. That's a pretty unusual thing. Most of the time, you have a gift to play professional football, maybe professional baseball, but rarely do you find somebody who plays both. He actually did and succeeded at both. In the same way, Jesus accomplished two tasks that usually were accomplished by one, either a king or a priest. Jesus accomplished both. Jesus was both a king and a priest, and he did both things better than anyone else has ever done them. And through Jesus' work as king and priest, you and I can know God, and you and I can live the abundant life. I want you to know, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. We're going to talk about Jesus in his role as king and his priest and uh, how that makes a difference for us. Now, uh, we've been doing a series called I See Jesus in You, Old Testament characters that were pictures of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament character this week is Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek is an Old Testament character that appears two times in the Bible. He appears in Genesis chapter 14, a few verses there where uh, he meets Abraham. And uh, Abraham has just come back from a battle. Melchizedek blesses Abraham uh, and brings bread and wine to him as Melchizedek is a priest, brings this bread and wine to him. And then Abraham tithes a tenth, gives a tenth of everything he gets in the spoils of battle to Melchizedek. So that's all you hear of Melchizedek until you get to Psalm chapter 110, which is where we are today. And uh, in Psalm chapter 10, or Psalm chapter 110, Jesus is described as Melchizedek. Now, Jesus' name is not mentioned. But it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And in this prophecy, God declares a promise that there would be a new priesthood, not the priesthood of Levi that Moses had established in the law, but a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And this new priest would be a priest forever. And that's what, what uh, the scripture is talking about and pointing to Jesus. Now, it's a picture of Jesus. How so? Well, one is Jesus in his first coming came to be a savior. He came to be a savior. And so Melchizedek in Genesis 14 brings the bread and the wine. Now you say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, it was a picture of the sacrificial work. Priests in the Old Testament... Levitical priests would offer sacrifices, but they would also offer bread along with those sacrifices. And they would break this bread and put it on top of the burnt offering and it would be consumed in the fire. And it was a picture of how Jesus' body would be broken for us. Uh, They also used wine. And what they would do is they would take it and they would pour it out beside the altar as the sacrifices were being offered. And it was a picture of the blood of Christ that was shed for you and me. It was the same place where the blood of the sacrifice would be drained out. And so these two things were a picture of a sacrificial work, the bread and the wine. Then you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus at the Last Supper. 
And what does he do? He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, This is my body which is given for you. And he takes the cup and he blesses it. And he says, this is my blood which is shed for you. So Jesus says, I am the sacrifice and I am the priest who is offering a sacrifice for your redemption. It also becomes a picture of Jesus' first coming, Genesis 14, because Jesus is doing the sacrificial work. And then Psalm 110 becomes a picture also of Jesus' second coming, where Jesus will come back not to suffer and die and be a substitute for our sin, but to rule and reign as a sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. So this psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm chapter 110, uh, is one of those psalms that predicts specifically what Jesus will do, uh, and it also covers both comings. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about that here in just a second. Uh, but uh, what I believe God is saying to us here is that we need to respond to Jesus. You know, why do you have a sermon about Jesus? Well, the sermon about Jesus shows you who Jesus is, and it shows you how to respond. And we, as God's people, need to respond to Jesus with obedience and worship. For all of his greatness and goodness to us. And we need to follow him and trust him in life. He is worthy of our trust. So look with me, if you will, at Psalm chapter 110. The title of my message is The Greatness of Jesus. The Greatness of Jesus. Look at verse 1. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, that's Jerusalem. Rule over your surrounding enemies and your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush Kings on the day of his anger, he will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. First thing I want you to see about the greatness of Jesus is he's great because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, this psalm is a debated psalm. Uh, the Jews believed that this psalm referred only to David. Uh, well, not all Jews, but some during the time and after the time of Christ ha have believed that. Uh, then you have some critical scholars that believe uh, that it may be referring to David or something else. Uh, but can I tell you something? Whenever God brings about a, a marvelous, miraculous awesome prophecy. The devil will do every, everything he can to try to distract people from the true meaning of it. Jesus had the same debate going on in his day about this psalm. And so Jesus, in, in, he does two things with this. If you will, if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to turn Matthew 22 and verse 41, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus and giving him a hard time and, so, and trying to debate with him. And so Jesus mentions Psalm 110, and he says in Matthew 22, 41, uh, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them, who do you think 
or what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Or whose descendant is he? David's, they told him. See, they knew. They had read the prophecies. They knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, which means, by the way, Lord, Master, or Sir, uh, it's a word that you speak of, you address your boss as Lord, you address the king as Lord, you, you know, you would address somebody who is in authority over you as Lord. It speaks of authority and rule, okay? And so, uh, he says, if David calls him Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Now, you see, our culture uh, really emphasizes youth. Everything, you know, hey, buy this cream and put it on your face and you can look like a 20-year-old, you know, somehow... I've never seen 70-year-olds that look like 20-year-olds, but that's what they tell you. Uh, there's, there's this desire for youth, but it wasn't that way in the culture of the Old Testament and the culture of Jesus' day. They looked back to their ancestors, and it's still true in the East today. You will be referred to as the son of so-and-so. They, they look back to your ancestors, and the person who is your ancestor is considered to be greater than the person who is the descendant. And so... Uh, what Jesus is saying here is, you know, they've just admitted that the Messiah is David's son. And then he says, well, well, then how come David addresses him as my Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. See, they all looked at this as a prophecy about the Messiah at Jesus' day. But Jesus is saying, hey, you need to, to think about this. You need to be able to answer this question. And if you can't answer this question, you don't understand the meaning of the psalm. Because this is not a prophecy about some mere king. This is not about David. This is not about one of David's descendants. No, this can only be fulfilled by someone who is greater than David. And so... Uh, they were delicting, they, they believed it was the Messiah, but how could the, David's descendant be greater than David? <laughs> because the Messiah is God. I'm going to tell you something. Abraham, in the first story about Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he gives him a tenth. Melchizedek also blesses him. The greater blesses the lesser in Scripture. It always happens that way. You don't tithe to somebody who is... Beneath you in authority. You, most of the time you tithe to God, didn't you? I mean, every, that's what you see throughout the scripture. You see a tithe being given to God. And yet Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. The greatest patriarch of Israel says, hey, Jesus in picture form. Jesus is Lord. You see, Melchizedek, I believe, was just a picture of Jesus. And through what Abraham did, Abraham showed that there was a greater priest. And by the way, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses, wrote this scripture. And he who, who wrote about the Levitical priest said, there's going to be a greater priest coming. There's a different priesthood that God recognizes that's greater. And that's the priesthood of Melchizedek. And in writing about Jesus, didn't use his name, but he was writing about him. In Genesis 14, he showed that this greater priest would come. So, 
Jesus, in, in answering and uh, asking this question, nobody was able to answer him, but Jesus was trying to get them to understand that this prophecy could not have been about a historical character. It had to be about the divine Son of God. There's no other fulfillment that works. Jesus is Lord. You say, well, pastor, what difference does that make to, to my life? Can I tell you that Jesus is Lord over your circumstances? That ought to matter to you. You say, well, there's some bad things happening in my life. I wish Jesus would, would do something about them. Did you know if you're a child of God, your circumstances are in his hand? And God even takes, even the things that God allows in your life that are negative, he takes those things and he can use them for good, and he does use them for good to those who love God, they call called according to his purpose. That's what Romans 8 says. God even takes the bad stuff in your life and uses it for your good. That's a comfort to me because there have been times in my life where things haven't gone the way I wanted them to go. But guess what? God doesn't wring his hand. God doesn't break into a sweat. God's not distressed by my circumstances. He's sovereign. Jesus is Lord. And any time he wants to, he can intervene. You remember the disciples in the boat? They're, you know, the rain and the, the storm and the w- w- waves are coming into the boat and the boat's beginning to sink into the water. They saying, hey, buddy, this fishing trip is turning into a nightmare. And, and we think we're going to sink. They said, Jesus, get up. Jesus is asleep. And you know what Jesus does? He stands up and he says, peace, be still. Immediately. The ocean was calm. The wind stopped. And the disciples' mouth, they couldn't believe it. Who is this guy who commands the winds and the waves and they obey him? The demoniac also knew that Jesus was Lord. He had been going around uh, unclothed running around the tombs, cutting himself with rocks. They tried to arrest him and put him in jail, but they couldn't find something strong enough to hold him. He'd, kept, he'd break the bands, he'd break the chains, and he, he was crazy. And people would actually avoid the area where he lived because they were scared of him. Jesus comes and the demons cry out, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, what are you doing? You know, they're, they're afraid of what he's going to do. So he ends up sending those demons into a herd of pigs, and the pigs go, go kill themselves down the down the uh, cliff. But the demoniac was then sitting clothed and in his right mind. And the townspeople came to see him. And they were scared to death. What can, we've never seen power like this. A man who can command demons and they obey. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is Lord. Colossians says that Jesus holds everything together by his power. He brought it together and he holds it together. Did you know Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, paying for your sin debt and for mine, was still in his divine nature, holding the very atoms which make up our bodies together by his power, holding the planets in their orbit. I'm going to tell you something. We serve an awesome God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of your circumstances. He's Lord over the enemy that that tempts you and attacks you. He is Lord over the governments of this world. 
The Bible says God holds the hearts of the kings in his hand. Jesus is Lord. Now, he is not presently choosing to rule and reign from this earth right now because God said, sit at my right hand. Did you know there's an explanation for the first and second coming of Jesus Christ here in this, in this psalm? The first and second coming. Because it says, sit at my right hand. That means Jesus was doing something else before he sat, right? Sit at my right hand, present, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Future, when Jesus comes back. All three elements are here. This is a prophecy that describes the first and second coming of Christ. This is important because the Jewish people didn't understand that when Jesus came. They were expecting a ruling Messiah. Matter of fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, show that there's evidence that they were expecting two Messiahs. One is a king, one is a priest. What this psalm does is it shows us that Jesus was both. It's a prediction from the Old Testament that predicts exactly what Jesus was and later did. I mean, that's remarkable. Do you know what the word Melchizedek means? It means righteous king. He's the righteous king who's come through. So Jesus is Lord. So you ought to live your life trusting him in your circumstances. You ought to live your life in obedience to him. Surrender to his lordship in your life. And that's the way to have abundant life. Did you know that? The devil will, will say, well, you know, if you follow Jesus, he'll take away your fun. But God says, if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. When you surrender your will to me, you begin to find out what life's all about. Surrender yourself to him. Jesus is Lord. Secondly, not only is Jesus Lord, but Jesus is priest. Jesus is priest. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. Here's yet another reason this could not be referring to any human king. Forever. 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 There is no king that Israel has ever had that has lived forever and ruled forever or been a priest forever in Israel's history. There's not a single one. Only Jesus fulfills this. He is a priest forever. Jesus, you, you say, well, why did they have all those sacrifices in the Old Testament? Because they were just pictures of what Jesus would later come to do. And when Jesus died on the cross, he said these three words, it is finished. The work of redemption had been completed. And he gave up his spirit to God. Three days later, he arose from the grave. But what Jesus did, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work's done. His work is an eternal work. Did you know that Jesus saw every sin you would ever commit before you were born? And he still died for you. Every unclean thought, every misspoken word, every sinful attitude, every action that you would take that would break God's command. Jesus saw every single one. He knew it perfectly, and yet he still chose to die for you and for me. Is that not an amazing thought? And on the cross, 
All the sins that we had not even yet committed and all the sins that they had committed beforehand in the Old Testament were placed upon Jesus in that moment of time and God formed a contract and he said, my wrath has been poured out on my son. My penalty has been poured out on my son. The debt is canceled. The price is paid. So that those who choose to turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus can have forgiveness and eternal life and have access to God's presence. What did the priests do in the Old Testament? I'm going to come down here. There's a nice big open spot right here for me to uh, illustrate this. Imagine this is the eastern side of the tabernacle, and right here is the altar. What the priest would do is he would, he would sacrifice this sacrifice here on the altar as the worshiper came, and the worshiper would be forgiven. Uh, then uh, the priest would go and he would wash in the labor and so forth and, and, and then he would enter the tabernacle proper. And uh, different types of priests would go in and do this work. But here on the left-hand side would be the menorah, the lampstand. And he would put the oil into the lampstand and it would bring light. Uh, and, and, and bring, it was a picture of how Jesus is the light of the world and how the Word of God brings light to our hearts through the power of Christ. Uh, but Jesus would do that. Then uh, the priest would do that. And then he would go to the bread, the, the, t- the table of the presence, and there was bread put out there. And he would replace the old bread with fresh bread. And the bread was a picture of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the, the priest would actually, the, menor- the uh, Mishnah tells us this, the priest would actually anoint it in the shape of a cross. Not, isn't that interesting? Uh, and so um, they would do this and on a regular basis, and it was a picture of the fellowship with God that was made possible through Christ. And then he would come over to the uh, altar of incense, and he would burn incense here uh, before the presence of God, and this cloud of smoke would go up, and it was a picture of the prayers of our high priest. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could do this, he would go past this this place right here called the holy place with the menorah and so forth and he would go enter into the holy of holies this was the most sacred place where the ark of the covenant was and the 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 cherubim were and he would place the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat once a year and it was a picture of the one-time sacrifice of jesus christ that would take away the sins of the world now why do i tell you all that Because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus was our sacrifice. If you go over here to the the bronze altar, he was our sacrifice. He was the priest who offered the sacrifice so that they could draw near. That's what the word sacrifice in Hebrew means, draw near. So we could draw near to God. And then he, he was the one who made it possible for us to be changed and transformed by the word of God. And he became the living word who came to bring light to our life. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who came to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. I'm the one who came to bring you fellowship with the Father. And then he goes into the Holy of Holies. Jesus said, when I got up on the cross, what I was doing is I was placing the blood on the heavenly mercy seat so that your sins could be forever canceled once and for all. That's what Jesus was doing for you and me on the cross. He is our priest. Now, not only does he do that, but the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus, just like the incense altar in the tabernacle, Jesus 
consistently offers prayers for us. Yes, what was God doing? Having Jesus sit at the right hand. He says in verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's, it, what's Jesus doing just sitting there for, for all these years? He's just sitting there, bored, twiddling his thumbs, you know. What's Jesus doing? Jesus, I'll tell you what he's doing. Hebrews tells us that he intercedes, he prays for you and for me. Is that not an incredible thought? Jesus consistently, constantly prays by the Father's side. He is watching what's going on. He's praying about you, your circumstances, the things that are going on in your life. Stephen, in the, in the, in the book of Acts, the Bible said he was a great godly deacon. He was preaching, and people didn't like what he preached. And uh, they came, and they began to kill him. They stoned him with stones. And, and the Bible says that Stephen looked up, and he says, I see heaven open, and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. That's the only place we know where, where Jesus got up to stand. Jesus was watching what was happening. Can I tell you, Jesus is watching what's happening in your life. He cares. He is praying for you. That's an awesome thing. You know, you need to trust God with your circumstances. Take the, have you ever had a situation you don't know how to pray? Ask the Lord Jesus to pray on your behalf. Say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. Pray according to the Father's perfect will for me or for this person. Uh, put your trust, if you don't know Christ, put your trust in his sacrifice. Make your, make your decision to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Why? Because that sacrifice, though it cancels all sin, is not applied to you until you make that decision. If you're saved, continue to put your trust. You know, sometimes what we do is we begin to listen to the lie of the enemy. He says that something like this. You're not worthy to come into God's presence. Who do you think you are? You're not worthy to serve. You're not worthy to go to church. You're not worthy to do these things. Why? Look at what you did in your past. <laughs> the devil's the accuser. You know what Jesus does? Jesus takes those filthy robes off, puts a clean white robe, and says, Okay, Satan, find anything wrong if you can with my perfect righteousness. Trust in the work of Christ. The price has been paid for you to have fellowship with God. Confess that sin to restore that fellowship, but recognize that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's been purchased for you by the blood of Christ. Jesus is our priest. So Jesus is Lord, Jesus is our priest, and finally Jesus is our judge. Jesus is our judge. And here in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. By the way, it's speaking of Jesus here, but the word Lord is a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. But in the, in the uh, Jewish uh, rabbinical literature, they refer to this word as meaning Yahweh, God. Kind of interesting, isn't it? You see, they're speaking, speaking of Jesus as being God. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings. On the day of his anger. Someday Jesus is coming back. And he's not coming back to suffer. He's coming back to take charge. His enemies will be slain before him. He's coming back as a conqueror. The Psalm 2 says with a rod of iron. He's going to come back to conquer and rule the nations. And for the first time in all of history. There will be peace on earth. 
through Jesus Christ. And then he will judge not only through his actions at his second coming, but he will judge us for our eternal state. You know, I hear people say, well, you know, I think God will grave me, grave me on a curve if I do more good stuff than bad stuff. Or if I go to church, I'll be okay. And, you know, I don't really have to surrender my life to Christ. I don't really have to put my trust in Jesus. I can just do some things and, and God will let me in. No, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And guess what? Jesus is going to be the judge. Are you going to say to Jesus on the day of judgment, I don't care that you died for me. Your death means nothing to me. I've tried to come to heaven on my own way. You need to let me in. Jesus is the one who will be judging you. As you look at the nail scars, can you reject what he's done? He has made the way. And he will be the judge. The Bible speaks of two kinds of judgment. Judgment for the lost people, which will be the judgment. It says, depart from me, I never knew you. And there will be levels of punishment in hell. The Bible teaches being beaten with few stripes, being beaten with many stripes. That there's levels of judgment in hell. But there will be an, eternal, an eternity in hell. People say, I don't believe in hell. Well, you may not believe in Mack trucks either, but if you walk out in that street and one's coming, you're going to get hit. doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. It's a real place, and there are real consequences to the decision that we make. So, uh, you need to make the choice, because if you, if you fail to trust Christ before you die, there'll be an eternity in hell. And then, uh, the second kind of judgment is a judgment for believers. Now, when you put your trust in Christ, when you make a choice to turn from your sin, put your trust in Christ uh, to save you, forgive you, uh, you become God's child, and there's a different kind of judgment that you'll experience. And that is uh, the judgment for Christians. And this judgment will be a judgment for rewards. And the things that we've not done that are displeasing to God, the Bible says will be burned up. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it says we'll suffer loss. What might have been, our reward will be lost. Uh, but then we'll have uh, gold, silver, and precious stones. There'll be, there'll be rewards that we get, we're receiving for the things that we've done uh, for Christ. Yes, the only reason that we did them is because Jesus changed us and made us new. He's really the one who deserves them. <laughs> but in his grace, he'll give us rewards. He'll be our judge. Let me ask you something. Are you ready to stand before the judge? You say, well, I heard Jesus' love. I, Jesus, won't, Jesus won't condemn me to hell. Jesus won't, Jesus won't uh, care about the things that I've done. Oh, yes, he will. Though Jesus is love, and though he loved you so much, and God loved you so much that he sent his son, it's also true that God is just. The Bible teaches that just as much. And God's justice had to be satisfied. That's why Jesus had to die. There was no other way for you and me to enter heaven because even the best of us does not meet God's standard. And God is not neutral toward our sin. He hates it. And so the only way that God could be just and bring us forgiveness is through Jesus. Were it not for Jesus, every one of us would split hell wide open. God sent Jesus so that his justice could be satisfied. So one day, the Bible calls it justification in Romans. So that one day, 
when you stand before God, it will have been written, justified, acquitted, sins canceled. And your name will have been written in the, name, in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll be able to enter heaven. That's the only way you can enter heaven is through Jesus. If you have not trusted Christ, the other books will be open. And every record of every sin you've ever committed, you'll be judged for by Jesus himself. That's what the Bible teaches. Will you be ready? It's an important question. We're not promised tomorrow. Next year, we're not promised. You need to respond today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ and the price he paid. And I pray, Lord, that you will be at work in the hearts and lives of people here today.